But good morning, Hope. Jesus is alive, amen? amen? What a good day to be able to gather and worship the risen Lord Jesus Christ. This is our, uh, of course, every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. We thank God that he rose his son on Sunday and, and then instituted Sunday gatherings so that the people of God every day can remember, every week can remember the resurrection, the, the first day of the new creation. It's been six plus something thousand years since God created the world, but it's been only two something thousand years since Jesus has begun the new creation of the world, which started at his resurrection. Do you believe in the resurrection, church? Yes. I know that we believe the resurrection. We confess it. We preach it. But I want to ask individually, I know that there are individuals among us who might even belong to the church or you've been invited today. What do you believe about the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Do you believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Or is most people in this room pleasant, polite fools who, who have believed a myth of, uh, of some herdsmen and these fishermen from an antiquity and their myth and the tale that they spread? Do you think that we've, we've bought into that? My, 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 not my thesis, my declaration to you this morning is that there is no rational, there is no logical, there is no sensible or sensical way of thinking about what happened in Jerusalem in that garden tomb 2,000 years ago other than the conclusion that agrees with the promise of God in Scripture that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead. Many people believe, and maybe this is you, there's, there's all sorts of theories. Some people try and say that Jesus, he, he looked as if he died, but he never really died on the cross. And so when they took him down, he was what they call swooned. This is the swoon theory. This is nonsensical and in the most polite usage of the word, idiotic. The Romans were experts. They were scientists. They were artists with being able to kill people. Do you think that the Roman centurion, centurion, a man of war, was not able to confirm that Jesus was dead? He was hanging there, probably naked on the cross, and, and he'd expired and he'd stopped breathing. A, a Roman knows how to at least count breaths and respiratory rates. And, and then he goes and he gets the spear and he drives it up underneath Jesus' ribs into his pericardial sac so that water and blood blood, which are divided, which is a case that happens in the excruciation of pain towards death. It pours out of his side as a confirmation that Jesus was dead. And then just to make sure, they took him down and they covered his body with kilograms worth of linen and, and, and embalming things. So, so he couldn't even breathe through it had he been faking and just holding his breath for a few hours, as some suppose that he did, and then he was put into a cold tomb with an enormous stone rolled over it, and then what do these people theorize happened on the Sunday? Well, he just wiggled out of his, you know, wiggled out of his uh, 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 tomb clothes somehow, being tied up, and then he tenderly moved this, this ton-heavy stone, overpowered the Roman soldiers that were in front of him, and then walked it off and said to his disciples... Not dead anymore. It was just a flesh wound. Don't mind the gaping wounds all over my body that are flaps and you can see my organs. No, no, no. I'm actually resurrected. This can happen to you too if you believe in me. Go and live for me. Is that, is that what you think happened? That, that did not happen by any sensible, sensical, logical, rational uh, consideration of the facts. What, what else might people have thought happened? That, that maybe, maybe the disciples just, you know, you've heard this. If you believe it so hard, you might just see it. Right? If you believe it so hard, you, you see it in the corner of your eye, or this is what they think might have happened, that here were the disciples hoping and praying so much and expecting that Jesus was going to rise, that, that, that they all just sort of, they, it was as if he did. They just, they saw what they, what they wanted to believe. Uh, I won't ask for any hands as to who actually believes that as a rational theory. I hope it's not you. I, I want to respect you enough to say you're far too smart to believe that. He, he, here's two reasons why. 
First of all, because they had no belief in a resurrection that would happen mid-history. In order to say they believed it so hard they saw it, they first have to believe it at all, and they had no category in their theology for that kind of resurrection. Hence, might I point out, hence the terrible, depressing sadness of Friday afternoon. They didn't go home and pack all of their Easter eggs and wait for Sunday morning because they knew Jesus was going get to get up anyway. And when they didn't, they, they thought that he did. They had no, uh, no room in their theology for a resurrected man in the middle of history. They thought it would happen at the end of history. And, and then not only that is that one reason, uh, but secondly, there is absolutely no such thing as a group hallucination. There's no such, I mean, I know maybe you've listened to one podcast or your uncle at the Christmas party and he's told you that a few substances later you can see all sorts of funny things. But what has never happened is a hallucination shared by a group of people. These 12 men and the women with them, the 120 plus people had not seen a group hallucination that goes against the very fact of what a hallucination of chemicals overpowering the perceptions of the brain even is. Paul even says to us that this happened, that Jesus was seen to a group of more than 500 people at one time. There is no room in our theorizing for simply a a hallucination that that snowballed into a myth, into a tale, and into a story of a resurrection. The the disciples told the, the hundreds of people would bear witness to the fact that they saw Jesus with their eyes. They spoke to Jesus with their mouths. They ate with Jesus around a meal. They touched Jesus' body. They heard him speaking, and they were all in one unison agreeing. And, and maybe the one last, you know, the one last little uh, theory you might, you might punt for from, the, from the, the 40-yard line. You're just going to boot for this one and hope it makes it to touch. And this is, well, maybe they were lying. At least, at least leave room for the fact that men are sinners, and they have been lying. But what did they gain? A man lies for what he might gain out of such a lie. What did they gain but a horrible life, a loss of their property, riches, being cast out by family, suffering in their life, and almost all of them horrible, horrible deaths as martyrs. Is that what they they lived for? A lie that they made up for no purpose and no reason as poor idiotic herdsmen know. No, the only logical conclusion is that conclusion which bends its knee primarily to what God tells us in Scripture, and that is the historical fact, the real fact, the true fact that Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter boy, grown up to be prophet, teacher, speaker, and good man, became for us Lamb of God and was proclaimed as risen from the dead by the Spirit because his body came back to life, showed himself, and declared to all that God's power has been manifest in his resurrection. That's the only logical conclusion. I know, it's, I know it's fantastical. I know it's amazing and maybe for you far too good to be true, but it is true. And here's what the song that we just sung declared is that because Jesus is raised from the dead, therefore every sinner the whole world over can hear the demand, rejoice. Sinners are allowed to, 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 to come to God. Sinners are allowed to, to come near to God's no longer a judgment throne, no longer a flame of consuming fire to burn up sinners, but a welcoming heart of love that, that will only burn his enemies, that will only judge those who stand far off. But because Jesus has been raised, let sinners rejoice and come pressing into the kingdom through the name of Jesus Christ, who died for us and rose for us, now stands at God's right hand, beckoning us home. That's the good news of Resurrection Sunday. It's true. It's real. It's historical. And it is filled with meaning. 
So today, we're not only asking what happened, we've, we've established that. We're not just asking what happened, but why it happened. What is the meaning of Resurrection Sunday? What is, a, what is accomplished by the resurrection of the God-man? Not just a resurrection of any man, but a resurrection of the man that we studied on Friday. The God-man, the God who had come into human flesh in our likeness, truly human in every sense of the word, and yet fully divine, never, never missing out on what it meant to be truly human, never at all my, uh, uh, minusing from himself any of his divinity. This is, this is the mystery of what we call the God-man, fully God, fully man, dying as man and yet sacrificing himself for us with the value and the merit and the righteousness that only God has. This is our first question, our first answer to the question, why the resurrection and what did it mean? It means this, as we rehearse one of our points from Friday, it means that God is satisfied. God is satisfied. We remember that Jesus, in his suffering of the cross, in his brutalization, it was many things. We, we study that from the human point of view, it was an unjust trial. It was an unfair treatment. It was an unrighteous murder, and it was a, a state-sponsored execution of an innocent man. He should never have died. It was, the, it was the most heinous evil ever done in the world. The only perfect person, brutalized, executed, slaughtered, humiliated by mankind, by the leaders of the Jews and the leaders of the Gentiles were all guilty in this, that Jesus was murdered horribly and unjustly. And yet, and yet, from the divine side, there was something more deep going on. It was not merely that Jesus was a, a political victim. It was not merely that he was a good guy, giving it a crack, and he failed, and we, we remember him in pity. It's not simply that he had, he had tried to be an activist and was caught because he fronted up against the Roman military. It is none of those things. The reality of his unrighteous death of an innocent man on the human side, on the divine side, is in fact that God the Father had placed onto him our sin. God had placed onto him the guilt that was, that, that was belonging to us. He carried our names, our records, and our lives on his own shoulder to the cross. And there, God poured out his punishment. God poured out his wrath. God poured out his anger so that everybody represented by Jesus can be forgiven because justice has been met. It was, a, it was a transaction. The, no, the, only the, the most guilty of people, it was Judas and the, the high priest and the, the Sadducees and Pharisees and in fact the Romans and Pilate and, and Herod, they had all conspired together, though they hated each other. They thought it's, it's worthwhile conspiring to kill Jesus. And none of his followers had tried to get him killed. Jesus had not organized with any of the Pharisees that, that they would fulfill the prophecies and murder him. He, he didn't do that. The, 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 uh, the, the transaction was not between Jesus and his killers. It was the killers had made a transaction. But on the divine side, Jesus had made an, an, an agreement, a, a covenant, an agree, a, a, a transaction that, that the Son, God the Son who became Jesus, and the Father had agreed that, that Jesus had said, I will go into the world and I will represent my people. 
And the father had said, I will send you into the world and you will represent your people. And, and I will give them to you after your representation of them. And Jesus said, I will go and I will receive them from you. And, and God had said, but if you go, you must pay for their guilt. And Jesus said, I will go to pay their guilt. And the father had said, and if you go and you pay their guilt, you must live a perfect life instead of them. And Jesus had said, I, would, I will go and I will live a perfect life instead of them. And the father had said, and if you do this, if you live your righteous life, if you represent them perfectly, if you make a sacrifice that is satisfactory, I will raise you from the dead. That's Psalm 16. The Holy One will not see corruption. I won't leave you in the grave, my son. I will not leave you in the grave long enough for the maggots to, per to, 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 to ruin your flesh, for the, for the bacteria to break down your body. You won't even be in there that long. I'll rise you on the third day. And so this is what happened. That on the cross of Calvary, Jesus was upholding his side of the divine bargain for our salvation. That he'd agreed with the Father. He would come and represent us and die for us and be executed in our place under the divine law. And therefore on Sunday, the resurrection of Jesus is God the Father upholding his side of the bargain. This is the question that, that echoed all throughout Friday afternoon. Jesus had said... I'll go and I'll represent them. Everything I do, Father, I'll do for them. I'll do in their place. I will do as if I am them before the law. I'll live for them. I'll obey the law for them. I'll make sacrifices in the temple as they're commanded to. I'll honor my Father. I'll fill all of the Ten Commandments up to its fullness for them. And I'll die for them. I will do it all for them. And then Friday afternoon... As his body had breathed its last, as his soul was released and went to paradise, as, as, as he died, the God-man was crucified. The question that, that hung over the whole universe was, was his sacrifice accepted? Was his representation of us satisfactory? Was his blood atonement enough to satisfy the eternal, infinite demands of the holy God. That question echoed through the universe on Saturday. When, when we have almost no words of scripture about that day, it echoed through the universe. And Sunday morning is the answer. There's a very special day in Jewish Tradition in the, in the scriptures that were given to the Jews, it was one of their biggest holidays of the year that would take place primarily uh, around the feast at Jerusalem in the temple. And it was the day called Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. And on that day, the high priest would be allowed to go into the most holy section of the temple only that day, only him once a year. And he would take the sacrifices that represented the people of Israel. The, the whole gathering would be there and he would take the sacrifice that he had sp uh, sprayed upon them, some of the blood, and he had sprayed it on the, on the outside altar. And then he was to go in through the curtain into the Holy of Holies and there he would make atonement for their sins. It was that day that the, the high priest went in and on the Day of Atonement... The whole, of, the whole of Israel being represented by him, he would only be able to go in and then come out alive 
if his sacrifice was accepted. And his sacrifice was only accepted if he had done everything the Lord commanded, if he had stayed pure the way it had been commanded, if he had done the sacrifice the way God had commanded it, only if he did everything according to the requirements of the law would you see him come back out of the Holy of Holies alive. And when they came out alive, there would be the declaration to all the people, our sins are forgiven, the atonement was accepted, the sacrifice is satisfactory, go your way, your sins are forgiven. And on Sunday morning, when Jesus came out of the heavenly holy of holies, having sprinkled his blood on the true and better spiritual holy place, he was sent back down to earth as our high priest who went into heaven with the sacrifice, not of a lamb or bull or goat, but with the sacrifice of himself. He is both high priest and sacrifice. And he went into that place before the Father. And guess what the Father did? He sent him back. He sent him back out of the curtain into the the land of the living so that we may all see, as as a true and better Israel, we might all see the King of Kings, the high priest, come from the holy place and know the sacrifice was accepted, the blood was pure, the atonement was enough, and God is satisfied. That's what Sunday morning is on that day of Jubilee. Romans chapter 5 tells us that Jesus was the representative in the place of Adam. Romans 5 verse 18 speaks to this. It says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men. This is Romans 5, 18. As one trespass led to condemnation for all men, that is that that Adam had been placed upon earth in the Garden of Eden as our very first legal representative. And God had basically said to him that whatever you do will be accounted to your, your offspring. You're representing humankind here, Adam. His name literally was man for mankind. We're all, we're all just Adamites. We're the Adams family. There you go. I can see a couple of cousinets and Uncle, Uncle Festers in our midst. We're, we're all Adams family. Okay? And, and so we're all represented by him in the garden so that whatever he did was accounted to us. Whatever he did would be reckoned to us. He was there, here's a very important word, on our behalf. He was there on our behalf. And what Paul is telling us in Romans 5 is that by his one act of transgression, his one trespass was enough to not just condemn him, but because he represented everybody in him, that is all humans, it was enough to condemn all humans also. But look at what Paul goes on to say. He says, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That is that that God had said, I will not leave my, my created people. I will not leave humanity in their misery, in their curse, and in their loss. I will not leave them alone in their sin. I will send an Adam 2.0. I will send humanity's only second chance. You don't get second chances. We don't get second. We sin, we're we're condemned. We don't get to try again as a second chance. Our only second chance is in the second Adam. A second round of representation. A second opportunity for somebody who represents us to do good, be righteous, and fulfill the law in our place. And this is what Jesus did by his one act of righteousness. His his life and giving of himself in the cross, this one act of righteousness, leads to justification and life 
for all men. That is, everybody represented by Jesus in him, in his death, God sees a fulfillment of the law, a satisfaction of his wrath, and an accomplishment of righteousness so that God can say to you, if you are represented by Jesus, and that is only by faith in him, if you are represented by Jesus before God, then you don't have to represent yourself. You don't have to present yourself before God naked to receive the justice. You don't have to give an accounting for your sin. Jesus gave an accounting for your sin. As the high priest used to represent the people and go before God, so also Jesus represented us and went before God and his resurrection was that declaration that God was satisfied and divine justice had been done. But I want us to go back to the idea, <coughs> the idea of Yom Kippur, the, the, the Day of Atonement. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus Christ was a declaration that God was satisfied. But secondly, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the declaration that death is dead. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 50 says this. I tell you this, brothers. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. A little, little side note for us. This is, what, this is what Paul means, is that just because you were born of flesh does not mean you get to go into heaven. The, the, the flesh and blood does not inherit the imperishable, eternal, undying kingdom of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter who your parents are, how religious you have been in your growing up, who, or, or what you have ever done. That is all language of flesh and blood. What you have done, who you're related to, where you have been, that's a matter of flesh and blood. And, the, and you are only of flesh and blood because you're an Adamite, because you're born of Adam. And where will Adam's representation take you? To death. Your flesh and blood take you to hell. That's all. The question of the kingdom of God is, is, the, is, the, is the language of being a spiritual person. You can't enter the spiritual kingdom unless you are made spiritual, unless, unless your flesh and blood has also been added to in the imperishable reality of spiritual life. Now, I know there's people in our midst today or friends of yours and family members who will say, I'm very spiritual. I'm not religious, I'm very spiritual. And by that they mean that they, they, they touch a Himalayan rock salt and they wear the gems and they you know, do the Enneagram and your number is 666 or whatever it matters. Uh, you, 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 you feel spiritual because you're in touch with the, with the ethereal uh, divine light uh, effusing all world. No, that is not what is meant at all by Paul the Apostle when he says that you must be spiritual. When he says that you must be spiritual, what he means is what John meant or what Jesus meant when he said you have to be born again. In other words, you were born as a son of Adam, guilty, damned, condemned, and bodily. But you must be born by Jesus, as a son of Jesus, in the spirit, so that your soul comes to life, 
You, you become a spiritually awake person, and you are, in that sense, uh, spiritually born again. That's, that's what is meant here. So I'll read it again. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. The only thing the body that you're in right now is headed for is death. But if you have been given spiritual life, you will also receive a spiritual, renovated, glorified body for the kingdom of God. Let's go back to what he's saying. Verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Here's what he's saying. In the last generation of humanity, when Jesus comes back, there will be many, many Christians who do not die or sleep, as he says, who are not in the grave and then have to be resurrected. He says, we won't all sleep. We won't all be dead and resurrected, but we will all be resurrected in the twinkling of an eye. In a, in a moment, even if you're one of that last great generation of Christians alive when Jesus comes back, you'll still go through a resurrection. This body will still, will still be vanishing away and recollecting into this beautiful, glorified, resurrected body. So you don't have to die to be resurrected, but this body cannot go into the spiritual kingdom. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I tell you a mystery. Not all of us will sleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. At the last trumpet. The trumpet in scriptural language and imagery and Jewish tradition, the trumpet is a declaration of liberty. The trumpet would be the, the sound that would be blasted so that captors and slaves and debtors would know that their salvation is nigh. On the Day of Atonement, every, every seven Day of Atonements, uh, sorry, every 50 Day of Atonements, which happened every year, every 50 years they would have what is called the Year of Jubilee. The Year of of jubilee. And what happened is that on that day of atonement, seven years of seven years, 49 years, and then the 50th year, on the day of atonement, the high priest would go into the holy place, just as before, and Israel would wait with bated breath, is our sacrifice accepted? And there they would stay, but on the outside of the holy place, Standing around the temple, there would be men holding up the ram's horn and holding up the trumpets because this time it is not any ordinary day of atonement. It's the year of Jubilee. And on the year of Jubilee, when the high priest comes out of the temple, when the high priest steps out of the Holy of Holies, the Israelite priests and Levites take the biggest breath they've ever breathed for this once-in-a-lifetime experience, and they blast those trumpets till their lungs give out. And throughout the whole land, the, the, the book of Leviticus says, throughout the whole land, the, the trumpets would echo and echo, and there would be a, be a chain of beacons of the audible sound of the trumpet going throughout the entire nation as a declaration, it is the year of Jubilee. But that means nothing if we don't know what the year of Jubilee means. <laughs> so I'll explain it. You're welcome. The year of Jubilee is the, is, is the year of this, of this extreme freedom and return of slaves. 
So, so, so if people had given themselves into indentured servitude or they'd taken out enormous loans or they'd given their family land a way to be able to make money and survive, the year of the Jubilee was a year when God would in fact command no harvesting, no farming, no tilling, no toiling. The land was not allowed to be farmed. And his promise was that in the year before the year of Jubilee, you'll have threefold harvest. One for, the, one for that year, one for the Sabbath year that you're not allowed to work, one for the next year while you're still about to harvest, and then you'd have plenty of food even though you're not working. So, so it's this declaration of rest. You've been working. You've been sweating. Some of you have been slaves. Others of you are debtors. But today, you get to give up your debts, go back home, and rest. You don't have to farm for three more years. The high priest made a sacrifice, so the whole people he represented got to rest. Jesus' resurrection on that Sunday morning was a, was a declaration of jubilee. No more striving under the law. No more making sacrifices. The people of God now have a blood-bought rest because the high priest has arrived out of the holy place and declares to the whole people of God, lay down your arms, go back home. The families are restored. The riches are given back. The trumpet has been blown. Resurrection Sunday is a jubilee. But 1 Corinthians 15 said the last trumpet. Look at verse 52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. Now, this is the end of history. When we get resurrected, some of us while we're standing there, others of us coming up from the ground, out of the sea, out of the ash vases that we keep, wherever we are. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, faster than you can blink, at the last trumpet... The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For the perishable body must put on the imperishable. He said that already. You can't go into heaven with this body. You need the imperishable body. So you get it when Jesus comes back with the trumpet. We must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the, mort the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass that saying which is written, pause. Did you hear what he said? There is a trumpet that was spiritually blown on that Sunday morning when Jesus came out from the grave. But there is a last trumpet. There is still a trumpet that we are waiting for which Paul calls the adoption of our bodies. It's the day that the whole creation is groaning like a woman in childbirth for. It's the day you're waiting for, whether you realize it or not. It's the day when Jesus finally comes back. The trumpet blasts. The angels come. All of our loved ones from heaven will be with him. And we all in that moment are declared liberty from the curse. Liberty from working, liberty from debts, liberty from hardship. No more crying, no more tears, no more death. Adam's curse has been over us all this time, but that was flesh and blood. Now is the spiritual, now is the incorruptible. Now it's time for the immortality to clothe everybody that belongs to Jesus. And in that day, that trumpet will blast like it has never been heard. And it will never be blown after that again. Because there will be nothing to be jubileed from. There will be nothing to be delivered from. 
after Jesus resurrects us. And therefore it says in verse 54, when that happens, look at the end of the verse, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? When Jesus rose from the dead, he, he, he struck the bell. He landed the blow to death so that it knew it would one day die, which will happen on the last day to us. So that as Jesus is, so we also will be on that day. As we see him, we will become like him in character, in personality, and even in body, never to die again. What is the, the resurrection of Jesus? It's first of all a, a declaration that God was satisfied. And it is secondly a declaration that death is dead. And we will experience that one day, one day hopefully very soon. But there's also one more thing that we can, we can glean from this reality of Jesus' resurrection. And we find this in Acts chapter 17. And this reality <coughs> is that Jesus Christ is declared to be the judge of all the earth. Jesus is the only person, I want you to hear me, Jesus is the only person that any created being, angel, demon, or human, Jesus is the only person that anybody will give an account to on judgment day. That's why he says, don't worry what your friends think, your father thinks, your mother thinks, your school friends think. Don't care what they think on matters of eternity. This is a matter between you and the risen Christ. You will not be standing in judgment before, before mere mortals. No one will stand in judgment before even angels or the devil. Or even, can I say, in our generation, you won't be standing in front of your inner child. You won't be standing in front of a mirror judging yourself as to what you think you deserve because we're all about self-assessment and self-love and self-esteem. You'll be standing in front of only Jesus Christ and he's no therapist. He's very honest. He, he will expose us for every single sin we have ever committed. Jesus is the only one to whom we will be held account. Jesus' eyes, those blazing eyes, are the only eyes that anybody will look into on judgment day. There is no other name that anybody will be accountable to. We see this in Acts chapter 17. Paul, preaching to the Greeks, who no doubt would mock him and laugh at him for such a belief in the resurrection of a God-man. But he said this in verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked. There's many in our, in our midst this morning who have been living in the times of ignorance. Personally, you've, you've been living outside of a recognition of what the Bible says. You, you haven't understood the gospel or you knew it and you've rejected it. You've, you've lived outside of the, the righteous requirements of God and, and you're in this time of ignorance. That's not what this is talking about though. You don't get off quite as easy as the people Paul's talking to. Because the times of ignorance was for the whole world before the God-man came. Once the God-man came, there's really no time, there's no such thing as these times of ignorance in reality. Because the revelation has been made. The God-man has arrived. The sacrifice has been made. The resurrection has been, in fact, a historical reality. We don't get to hide in ignorance anymore. Here's what Paul said. The time of ignorance before Christ, before the, the kingdom's arrival, the times of ignorance... God overlooked, but now he commands 
all people everywhere to repent. God demands your repentance. He doesn't invite it. He doesn't, he doesn't wish it. He doesn't suggest it. God demands and commands as your creator that you repent to him for your sin. Because, here's verse 31, because he has appointed, he has, sorry, he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. Hear the mercy. God demands you to repent. God commands you to turn and trust in him. Not because he's vindictive and hateful and, and despises you. He wants your best. He's going to judge the world and in his mercy he says, before that day I've given my son, before that day I raised him, before that day I now tell you, come and call and receive salvation because there's a day coming when time will run out. There is a day coming when you won't get any more second chances. There is mercy. He has fixed a day and he warns us, but he will, he will judge righteously and perfectly. No sin will be unpunished. What he says, he will judge the world in righteousness by a man who he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. No matter what you call yourself, whether you receive the Bible as scripture or not, whether you think God has the authority to speak to you or not, doesn't matter. You're all. You come under the category of all and therefore God commands you to repent because he's already assured you that he will judge you one day by Jesus because he rose Jesus from the dead. Where's Buddha now? Dead. Where's Muhammad now? Rotting. I hope. He's dead. I know. His body's gone. His soul is elsewhere. Where's Zarasta? Gone. Where's all, the, all the, 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 the energies and spirits of our ancestors that people try and worship? Dead and in judgment under who? Jesus. There is only one judge. Everybody else is under death. Every spiritual leader, movement beginner, every, every spiritual or religious teacher, they're all dead. Do you know why? Because they're judged. They remain dead because they're still judged. Jesus keeps them dead because they are judged. Do you know why Jesus is alive? Because he's the judge. Death was judged onto him and he judged death as dead by raising. Only the person who, who, who overpowers the judgment is himself worthy of being the judge. He raised up. He has placed the judgment of death upon its own self. grasped for himself immortality as given by the Father and now stands as judge over every single one of us. God has declared him to be the high and mighty, lifted up, righteous, perfect, sacrificial lamb, resurrected God. He has he declared all of those things by raising Jesus from the dead and presenting him before you today. Now, maybe you ask, where's that proof? Well, we discovered a lot of it before we even started. I hope you remember. Maybe you say, ha, 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 he hasn't shown himself to me. How can, how can I know? Friends, this is how God has ordained and planned the message of Christ's resurrection to be told to you. This is the proof that 2,000 years later, you know who people are still being saved by? Jesus of Nazareth. 2,000 years later, do you know whose words people still live their life by? Jesus of Nazareth. You know what is the one indestructible religious force in the world? The true religion, Jesus Christ. This is how God has, this, this preaching of the gospel, this is how God wants you to, to experience Jesus as resurrected and trust in him as the satisfaction for your sins. You know why? God has encased the glorious, beautiful message of power and resurrection from the dead. He's encased it in the folly of men who preach. 
such is his wise design. So that if you walk away and say, this is silly, he doesn't seem intelligent, I'm not changing my life for that. Yeah, the world will pat you on the back and tell you that you're wise, thoughtful, discerning, rational, scientific, but to the fools, to those who believe God, who are the truly wise, to those who believe God that you are a sinner, that your only hope is in a perfect substitute, that your, your glorious hope is in the fact that he raised from the dead, to you who believe, the world will call you fools. So that on the last day, when the wise perish in eternity and the fools are raised incorruptible into glory, God will be the only one to get glory. What I'm asking you today, if you're an unbeliever, is to humble yourself. If that is impossible, pray to God that he would humble you, that you would receive such a foolish, mes- foolish, foolish message from a guy who can't even pronounce it. That you would humble yourself under what the word of God speaks over you, guilty, condemned, deserving death, and that you would receive in that humility the one way of salvation, which is in Jesus Christ, the God-man who died, who no doubt was risen from the dead for my justification and my salvation. That's the command of God to you. Repent while there is still time and find in him joy, glory, life, justification, salvation, and forgiveness for every one of your sins. Jesus is alive, amen? Let's pray to him. Father God, we thank you. We thank you so much that you made a provision that though you would curse this world because our first representative had failed, though you cursed this world in your justice and it was right and it was good because we were, we were evil and we had, we had sinned against you and though it was less than what we deserved, it was righteous. And yet God, in your mercy and your grace and your power and your sovereignty, you made a way of salvation. You prepared the way for so long through the Old Testament and, you, and then you came as at the fullness of time and you provided. You provided for us a lamb. You provided for us a substitute. You provided for us a sacrifice so that we did not need to die under your wrath and yet we could be counted as, as satisfying your wrath. We could be counted as righteous even though we couldn't be righteous. We can be counted as perfect even though we've never been perfect because you gave somebody else to go before you on our behalf. We thank you for the glory, the, the, the joy, the power of the resurrection that on Sunday Jesus defeated death. He, he was declared to be the Son of God in power. He was declared to be the God-man making a perfect sacrifice in every single one of us. Though we, though we still struggle with our sins or some of us are, are burdened under a guilty conscience, give us the faith to raise our hearts and our hands and our voices this morning and declare that there is nothing else required of me. Praise His name. It is all about Him. And Father God, I pray over those who do not believe this message is still one of foolishness to them, or this, this call to repentance is still one that they, that they do not desire to receive, I pray that you would change their desires, that you would give them a new heart, that you would, you would not allow them to remain merely in flesh and blood, but give to them that spiritual new birth so that they become new people, new creatures in Jesus Christ, and they trust in him, they lean on him, though they have no goodness of themselves, that they will become like us, People who are sinful but confident in a sinless Savior. It is in His glorious resurrected name that we pray all of these things this morning. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. 
If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.